We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. This episode, we'll be talking Gio Reyna. Ooh, U.S. Women's National Team, the Pez Outlaw, Burhalter, Juventus, McBride, Leagues Cup, Gunners, Soccer Scarves, Hamburgers, and so much more. But first joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you doing on this Monday, January 23rd of the year 2023? I am doing great. If you've listened to this podcast the last couple of weeks, I know I've been battling a cold. I sounded like Nas, but... uh... I think I'm over it. You sound great, yeah. Yeah, You sound back to your beautiful, crystal clear self. So you feeling better? Feeling much better. Okay, all right. So the uh, residual effects are are gone then. Okay, that's good. That's good for us, and obviously that's good for the viewer. Yeah, I was worried. That last uh, last part, I didn't want to say anything, but uh, I didn't know whether you were going to make it here. So you've you've turned the corner and you're back the other way. You watching anything interesting, my friend? I did. Uh, Season four of Fauda dropped on Netflix on Friday. I've already plowed through all 12 episodes. which one is that? I'm sure you brought this up before, but which one is that? Israeli show, uh, Mossad. Mossad. Got it, got it. Um, Tremendous season, 12 episodes. Already watched it. Highly recommend it. Love that show. And then the other thing is I have started this uh, Apple TV documentary about the Super League. Uh, Keith Cossigan. Recommended. He's been tweeting up a storm about it. Jason Wormser emailed me about it last night. Mm-hmm. Um, I've watched three of the four episodes. Uh, one left. I'm going to watch today. Very interesting stuff. It's good though. Yeah. All right. I will check it out. Uh, yeah, I've heard a lot about it too, and obviously that was a huge, huge story, and that somebody has documented it uh, and give us the uh, behind the scenes thing. Oh, by the way, speaking of you know historical documentation, I watched that movie that you recommended. The uh, the one about Argentina. What's it called? Argentina, nineteen. Argentina, nineteen eighty-five. Yeah. Oh my God, Mossy. What a a lumbering excuse uh, for a movie. I can't believe that that is actually being considered for uh, you know movie of the year, whether it's whether it's international or or regular. I I did not like it at all. I thought it was a glorified lifetime type of movie. I think you know, the sentiment behind what obviously is an incredible story and a, you know, the, the brutal dictatorship and the, um, you know, the men and women that fought for justice to bring, you know, these criminals to, uh, to court and to get their moment in court. That in and of itself is a wonderful story. I just think that this was done, like I said, in a, in a completely like just boring and, uh, it needed to be gr- more grandiose. Uh, and so, I don't know. I just had a completely different reaction that you did. Interesting. Not since the Sopranos have you and I differed on something to this degree. Right. Okay. So, Mossy gives it a thumbs up. I give it a, a, a thumbs down. But, you know, I, I did watch it. Um, what I also uh, watched was, you know, I, I love the, the documentaries. There's a documentary out there called, it, called The Pez Outlaw. Have you heard about this? No. Do you know what Pez are, Mossy? I do. Little candies, you know, in the dispensers. Uh, well, okay. there is an all-time great Seinfeld episode yes. centered around the Pez dispenser. Exactly. Go ahead. Exactly. And so, <laughs> for those that don't know, it's a classic. I mean, it's been around basically the last century. Um, candy, 
that is dispensed in these plastic things that have heads on them and they're almost toys in and of themselves that the candy comes out of. People know what I'm talking about. But there is also a huge industry and there has been a collector's industry behind it. And so this focuses on this one very, very famous collector uh, out of Michigan and the lengths that he went to acquire unique Pez um, toys, I guess you would call it, um, dispensers from around the world, including over in Europe. And the distribution over in the United States was very different in Europe. And so these were not available in the U.S. And it goes through all this incredibly uh, funny, but also, I guess, secret and to a certain extent, dangerous lengths that he went to to acquire Pez and then smuggle them back into uh, the United States. He is framed in this as a hero, um, but I couldn't help at times thinking that what you're doing is illegal and there's an infringement on, on I'm sure, copyrights and patents and all that, all that kind of stuff and proprietary type of stuff. But, you know, in the, in the uh, traditional sense of a, a, a hero, you know, sticking it to the man, if you will, that's what this is all about. But it was, it was incredibly interesting and funny. If, uh, if you're, well, not, whether you care about Pez or not, it's still a fun uh, documentary. It's called The Pez Outlaw. And I do recommend that. Anything else, Mossy? No. All right. Uh, you ready to light this candle? Let's do it. Look, there's all sorts of stuff going on, but we're gonna we're not gonna bury the lead. Sometimes we do that just to kind of get you to uh, dig in a little bit more. But we're gonna go right to Giorena. Okay. I, I think that that and you made this suggestion over the last couple of days as this story broke, and you're absolutely right, right, Mossy. You have your finger on the pulse of what people are talking about, and you have to have had your head in the sand to not know what we're talking about here. But give people a little idea, just so for those that did have their head in the sand, uh, have an idea what we're about to discuss here. Yeah. If you listen to this podcast, we usually do U.S. national team and MLS in the first segment, European roundup in the second segment. But given the context, we felt like Gio Reyna's goal and celebration this past weekend was more of a U.S. soccer story. The Bundesliga return after a lengthy hiatus due to the World Cup slash winter break. Dortmund involved in a crazy game at home against Augsburg. Gio Reyna came on in the second half. Minutes later, scored a sensational goal to give Dortmund a 4-3 lead. That ended up being the final. Gio celebrated that goal by putting his hands in his ears, indicative of ignoring the critics, and also similar to Memphis Depay's celebration yep. when he scored for the Netherlands against the U.S. in the round of 16 of the World Cup. So this all occurring against the backdrop of this whole Berhalter Reina uh, brouhaha, it obviously sparked a lot of strong opinions on Twitter. What was your take? So I, you know, I watched the game, and again, I am watching this game because of Gio Reyna. And again, we, we talk about this pod and the American soccer community out there that oftentimes looks at things through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. And so I'm tuning in because I know Gio, Gio plays there. It's good. You know, Dortmund is a great team anyway, but it makes it that much more appealing to me as an American soccer fan to have an American there uh, playing. And, you know, he doesn't start. But there's a chance of him getting in, so I tune in, and once again, he comes in in a, in a substitution role. We are fascinated by this story, and I always say we, not just people that have been involved in soccer. Everybody is fascinated uh, by this soap opera that we have gone into in detail for now a number, a number of weeks. So he gets on the field and is actually playing, uh, albeit in a substitute role, which is also what his role was at the, uh, the World Cup, scores a goal. Nobody is debating the talent that Gio Reyna is or what he hopefully can be as he progresses. Not me, not you, not anybody out there, not Greg Berhalter, <laughs> certainly not uh, Gio Reyna's parents. But everything that he does takes on added and more significant meaning, especially when you celebrate uh, like this. And don't think for a second that players don't have not ulterior motives, just have motives by the way in which they celebrate. It is that moment where you know every camera and eyeball is going to be on you and what you do is going to be interpreted and at times misinterpreted. So here is Giorena putting his uh, fingers in his rear, in his ear, in his rear, in his, uh, in his ears. To Giorena, I say this. Gio, I would love nothing more than to not have to hear another word about the crap that you and your parents pulled during the World Cup. Unfortunately, 
it is not going away and not going away anytime soon. And so we are going to have to continue to hear it. And obviously, by your reaction, you are hearing it. I actually am happy that you at least recognize that you need to be able to cut that out as to the extent that you can and go on. I'm happy that you are getting playing time. I'm happy that you're scoring a banger like this. That is wonderful. That was never, ever the question. And so those attaching meaning and significant and more meaning to this in order to validate their criticism and or hatred of Greg Berhalter for not playing uh, Gio Reyna. I don't see that connection. Just because Gio Reyna got in the game, by the way, again, in a substitute capacity and performed when he got on the field does not mean that Greg Berhalter is a bad coach or that Greg Berhalter's decision in how to react and handle Gio Reyna during the World Cup was wrong, or that Gio Reyna should have started for the U.S. in the 2022 World Cup. I know that's convenient, and I know it's right there in the palm of your hand, but that's not how soccer, uh, that's not how soccer works. Nobody's going to change their opinion about Greg Berhalter or Gio Reyna relative to anything that, that I say or relative to seeing something like this. But for a lot of people, this is the confirmation that they needed that Greg Berhalter needs to go and that he screwed up in the World Cup. But there are different elements to this Berhalter Reyna story. And it's worth remembering the jumping off point for the whole thing was Berhalter telling Reyna before the World Cup that he was going to have a limited role. Gio was upset about that. He started loafing in practice, and all the ugliness ensued from there. And I still say the Reynas were way out of line. I feel sorry for Greg Berhalter. Um, but from a soccer coaching perspective, he does still have to answer for that initial decision because Gio Reyna, I know, has battled lots of injury problems, but he was healthy by the time the World Cup came around. He had been playing for Dortmund. He is clearly one of the U.S.'s most talented players. And so why decide beforehand that he's going to have a limited role? That I don't quite understand. Again, it doesn't justify anything the Reynas did afterwards. But if we're just talking strictly from a soccer perspective, evaluating the job Greg Berhalter did as a coach at this World Cup, that is something that's questionable. So wait, you question a coach being honest with a player? Oh, no. Once he decided he was going to have a limited role, I don't have a problem with him telling Joe that. But why did he make that decision in the first place? Because he didn't think that he was good enough to start. And I question that decision. I mean, okay, we, we that's do fine. That. But that's a subjective decision, sure, ultimately. Yeah. And so when a coach makes a decision that that is going to be the case, he can certainly string the, the player along. And there's a, there are those that would argue that that's what a good coach would do and, you know, keep some powder dry and not put that seed into a player's head that makes them already know before the tournament starts that they are going to uh, be limited. There's the other side of it, and, I, and we've talked about this before, where you're actually being honest and forthright with the player. And then publicly, I think it's a little disingenuous to accuse Greg Berhalter, as people have done, of lying, okay? When he is trying to actually protect a player from the inevitable criticism that would come for the truth being out there in a World Cup that you have done this relative to you know, disciplinary action or... Uh, you know, behavior that you deemed it was necessary in order to act the way that you did. So ultimately, you know, Giorena has moved on from the World Cup. We are not moving on. And that he's doing this celebration guarantees that this story will continue on, which is what we are talking about right now. So mission accomplished, if that's what you wanted to do, Gio. I'm happy that he's scoring goals. We're going to talk a little bit more about this later on in the in the show and get into a, a little bit more about the future of the national team, whether it includes Greg Berhalter. It's going to include Gio Reyna, uh, but that he is playing, that he is scoring, that is a good thing for him, that is a good thing for uh, the national team. Well, the investigation into Greg Berhalter is ongoing. No decision yet. The reports are that it's unlikely he's going to remain as the coach. We'll see. But in the midst of all that, we find out this weekend that Brian McBride is out as general manager. I work with Brian here at Fox. Love him. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met in my life. 
but I must be honest, I never understood what this job entailed. So I have no idea what to make of this news. Uh, do they have to replace him or will the job just go away? I, I don't know what to make of this story. Well, so you, you hit it on the head in that, what is this job? And what is a GM's job for a national team? Not just a national team, for the men's national team here, because this is where it falls on Ernie Stewart and Brian McBride to a certain extent. They had plenty of opportunity to make it crystal clear as to what that job was, what the responsibility was. And this is either an effort by Ernie Stewart, who, you know, the, the buck stops with him ultimately, and he's making these decisions to say that Brian wasn't doing the job. And then it falls to him to explain, first off, what the job was and why he wasn't fulfilling that job. or that this job is redundant and unnecessary, in which case there's no need to fill it going forward. If you do actually believe that this is an important job for the men's national team, then you know the, the only way that you can read this is that Brian McBride didn't do his job. And you know that's not a good look for Brian McBride, but now Ernie Stewart has to find someone to come in and do whatever it is. But again, we, we, are, we are dying for information. And look, I know that the press and media can cut both ways. But if you're smart and you have people that are smart and capable, you can use us. You can use the press. You can use the media, all right, to get messages out there that you want. And again, you, me, so many others had no idea ultimately what this job was all about. And so it's difficult to assess whether he did a good job or a bad job or why this decision was taken not to rehire him uh, and to continue on with Brian McBride. But we'll see if this, uh, this job gets filled. To your point, there's not a person that you will find out there that has a bad thing to say about Brian McBride. Who knows? Maybe... Maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> Maybe he wasn't ruthless enough in, uh, in his actions. But again, you're not, you're not trading players, all right? You're not dealing with the mechanisms that exist in a league, whether it's MLS or anything else out there. The players are the players. Over the course of the cycle, it has to be said, the amount of players that were, uh, that dual nationals in particular, that were brought to the U.S. side, you know, that's on his watch. And that, you know, I think that that I think he certainly had a part to play in that. Uh, lots of news involving U.S. national team players in the transfer market. We're in the midst of a transfer window right now. Uh, Timothy Way has had a frustrating season at Lille, not playing that much. And even when he gets on the field, it's usually not at his preferred position. So the story is that he wants out. Sevilla and Borussia Mönchengladbach mentioned as potential destinations. All right. Well, just wanting out and being able to get out is, uh, is two different things. Uh, but obviously it's not going well for him from a playing perspective. So again, we just go back to that. Yes, I would like to see him go someplace else where he is playing, but you know, is this a problem going forward? I will say going to either Sevilla, Borussia, Mönchengladbach would be Step decent up. landing spot. Sevilla are having a rough season in La Liga, but still I consider them a bigger club than Lille. Yeah. And so that's falling up, right? General pecking order, yep. Wesson McKinney, mm -hmm. uh, lots of rumors about him in recent weeks. The latest ones, linking him to Arsenal. You know, the McKinney rumors run the gamut from some, it's a step down, it's portrayed as Juve looking to unload him, and then others, it's a step up. He's raised his stock to a degree that clubs like Arsenal and Liverpool are interested in him. So I never know how to read what exactly his stock is right now in European football, but a move to Arsenal would be tremendous. Look, I think a move to Arsenal, a move to Spurs, both of them, you know, I know they're, they're different right now, but they are a move up, especially with what Juventus is going through right now. We'll talk about that a little uh, a little later. But we rumors about Weston McKinney moving are, like you said, nothing new. I think at this moment in particular, they are as as real as any time, or they are more real and and based in and uh, foundation than any time in the past. So I think that there's a real chance that they figure out a way for him to move and. And to your point, I think he, it would be a move that he wants. I think that a move that would be beneficial to him. He's not going to, I mean, if he goes to Arsenal, look, they're flying right now. So he's going to have to fight for his spot. Nothing new that he hasn't done, uh, done before. But by the way, if this is, you know, the way that Arsenal does, does business, again, 
Um, we talked about having an American, and this is not just any American. This is an American that a lot of teams out there would like, not because necessarily he's American. That's just a, a cherry on top, but because he's such a such a good player. So I would love to see this actually happen for uh, for Weston to go to the EPL, to take that step up, whether it's to Arsenal. As I said, even if it's the Spurs or something like that, I still think he needs a move at this point. I think it's it's run its, it's, run its course in Juventus. And if and when it happens, he has been wonderful over there in Italy. We talked about Sergio Dest on the last pod, not playing all that much for AC Milan. They acquired him on loan from Barcelona with an option to buy. And the latest reports are they're not going to exercise that option. So Sergio Dest in limbo. Uh, we'll have to probably wait until the summer to find out where he goes next, but he will not be staying at AC Milan. Yeah, so they're not going to exercise that option. $20 million, is that what you said? Oh, my goodness. Uh, which is not necessarily a, a surprise. Um, but... They've also said that nothing's going to happen in this in this window, right? Is or there, there's no rumors that he's going anywhere in this window. No, I it think he'll stay the through the end of the season and okay. then right. be on his way. All right. Well, you know, hopefully in the summer he finds a uh, a better place. We've talked a lot about him. We talked about him last uh, uh, last pod. Uh, anything else on the field? We shift gears to the U.S. Women. Okay. They played the second of their two friendlies against New Zealand. The first one they won four nil in Wellington. The second one they win five nil in Auckland. Hatch, Lavelle twice, Swanson, and Korniak with the goals. Two wins out of two for the U.S. women. They are often running in this World Cup year. They are, and look, nine goals for, zero goals against, whatever it ends up, uh, ends up being, that's great. Shouldn't be a surprise. I don't think we learn necessarily anything new from a soccer perspective because of the competition or the lack of competition in two games against a completely depleted New Zealand. However... The players that will be involved in the summer get the lay of the land. The the uh, the, uh, the staff gets an understanding of what New Zealand is. As we've mentioned before, that's we're going to play all of their uh, group stage games. But I don't think the soccer part of it told us anything. You know, Gurma is wonderful. I think she's going to continue on and do that kind of stuff. And Huerta and these types of players. Crystal Dunn getting back on the field. You know, that type of stuff is is good. But this was glorified training and, and scrimmages. And this is unfortunately something that we oftentimes see this U.S. women's national team where we're just we're dying to glean some sort of information from the games that they play. And yet the amount of times where they're actually playing a competitive type of game against an opponent that will give them uh, some sort of pushback is so limited that it's so difficult to assess this team. Although next month, we should get some answers. Yep. She believes Cup, Canada, Japan, and Brazil, the opposition. Wonderful. So those are Wonderful. sterner tests yep. for sure. Yep, that'll be good. And uh, and hopefully they get you know the, the rest of the crew in there too so we can really start to assess where this team is in terms of a starting 11, potentially, and uh, the depth that we know is so important in, uh, in group play. U.S. men with two friendlies coming up. The first one, Wednesday against Serbia. Programming note, we're going to tape our next podcast Thursday morning so we can react to that game. So that'll be out Thursday afternoon. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, a player who is in the U.S. squad for these games, uh, the first against Serbia, the second one against Colombia, Alejandro Zendejas. He's been in the news. Uh, first off, he scored a great goal for Club America against Puebla over the weekend. And also, you know, he's been the subject of this tug of war between Mexico and the U.S. And news comes down that Mexico fined and they had to forfeit several games that he appeared in for them at both the senior and under-23 level. The issue is he played in the U-17 World Cup for the U.S. many years back alongside Christian Pulisic and Tyler Adams. And so in order to play for Mexico, he should have had to file a one-time permanent switch. He didn't. Mexico were unclear on the rules. They thought he could play for them. So he did. And they have to forfeit all those games. Mind you, they were all friendlies, so it's not that important. It'll slightly impact their FIFA ranking, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big an issue. Um, but See, uh, maybe this is what a GM needs to be doing, okay? <laughs> I mean, in this day and age, with the technology that we have, the information age in which we live in, this kind of crap should not happen. I mean, it should be understood what 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 is allowed what isn't allowed and th like this I, I don't understand i don't understand why this happens but it does all right so but we're okay mexico's not going to care about paying ten thousand dollars or whatever it ends up being or losing those points uh and ultimately we're the beneficiaries of the player which is at the end what everybody was clamoring for anyway right so he's in this squad uh to face serbia and colombia i know you have the entire roster in front of you uh sean sullivan 
our producer, would like you to identify five players in this squad who you think have a chance to be on the 2026 World Cup roster, remembering that there were five players from the 2019 Camp Cupcake roster who mm-hmm. ended up in the 2022 World Cup squad. Well, I've told you about my uh, reaction and love for Eric Williamson, and he's gone through a couple bad years here with an injury, but not only is he back, but he's in the national team camp. I, I Again, it's the closest that we have come to a Darlington Nagby type of player that I have seen, and... So I think that he has a potential to be kind of that Kellen Acosta type of player, um, pushing but or being a really good attribute and sub uh, behind that trio that we talk about in the midfield for the U.S. Uh, let's see here. I'm interested to see Slonina uh, and just what he is. And we know he's only 18, um, but with the national team, if he is ultimately the future, that would be interesting. And if he can, over the next few years, find a way to challenge Matt Turner, I think that's going to be that's going to be hard. Uh, and then look, uh, up top, uh, you mentioned Zendejas, which is going to be interesting in the midfield. Uh, Alan Sonora, uh, who you know, has, has, by all accounts, been a good player, gets his first opportunity with uh, the national team. He, uh, he's right now unattached here, but you know, for Independiente, he seemed, to, uh, he seemed to be good. And I would like to see what he looks like. And then Look, it's got to be up top, right? So Brandon Vasquez, I am interested to see. And I know we just talked in the <laughs> in a, a pre- couple minutes ago about not attaching too much to a play or a player when it's a completely different circumstance or, uh, or situation. And you know, Brandon Vasquez, if he scores against Serbia or scores against Colombia, again, it doesn't necessarily mean that he should have been with the national team or that he would have done that had we had him on the field against the Netherlands. I know this is a game we play. I know this is something we that we do. And I'm also not saying that it's not legitimate or fair to have that discussion, okay? I'm just saying it doesn't always work uh, it doesn't always work that way. Having said that, I want someone up top. I want a 9 even before the World Cup. I said Look, we don't have anybody. This guy plays the position in a very, very different way than anybody that we have. Bring him in. And so I, I, I'm looking forward to him. So I think he is, he's got a good chance in the other players uh, that I mentioned. But we all have players that kind of use this as a stepping stone in normal times. Again, who knows how much of this staff is going to be around. So who are you really impressing? By the way, in talking about the Columbia roster in our last pod. I rattled off some of the MLS players. I forgot to mention Cucho Hernandez. Ooh. He's on there as well. So that go. game is actually going to be fun. Uh, speaking of Alex Zendejas and Cucho Hernandez, they're in the same group in the League's Cup. How's that for a segue? Uh, the League's Cup groups were announced. Uh, reminder, this competition taking place later this year. 47 clubs uh, from MLS and League MX. Uh, LAFC and Pachuca get buys until the knockout stage. Uh, so the other 45 teams have been divided into 15 groups of three. It's kind of a World Cup style deal. In fact, this format uh, reminds me of the initial format they proposed for the 2026 World Cup, which would have been 16 groups of three. Uh, Yeah, I mean, looking at the groups, we don't have to go through all of them, but just overall thoughts about this competition. This is is something that we have never seen before. This is something completely unique. And I think that this is something that has the potential to be very successful. Uh, again, like you mentioned, uh, 47 teams between League MX and MLS. 77 games will be played in the U.S. and, uh, and Canada, hosted at MLS stadiums. It goes between July 21st and August 19th. MLS will shut down that entire time to the extent that uh, Liga MX would have been uh, or are in season. They will also shut down. Uh, there are also three points for a win, Penalty kick shootout wins get you two points. They go right to shootout uh, after 90 minutes. And a penalty kick shootout loss gets you a one point. I think that's really going to, be, uh, going to be interesting. The other part is, with this amount of time off, there's almost a part of me or coaching staffs that probably say, well, is, is it better to have that buy? Don't we kind of want to be playing and doing that things? Or if you get knocked out of the group stage early, you got a whole other period there where you're going to do you know, basically, basically nothing. But this is in line with what we've talked about in in terms of that that partnership and that crucial partnership from both sides uh, benefiting between Liga MX and uh, and MLS. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, the best Mexican clubs I would say right now are, are Pachuca, Tigres, Monterrey, and Club América. Pachuca, as I mentioned, have a buy. 
The other is uh, Tigre is in the same group as Portland and San Jose. So that's kind of interesting. Monterey in the same group as Real Salt Lake and the Seattle Sounders. Uh, Club America in the same group as Columbus and St. Louis City SC. Mm. Um, and don't get too hung up on the you know central or south or east or all that all that all that kind of stuff. But but there is going to be travel and there is going to be uh, you know wear and tear, if you will. But there's also a trophy out there, and there's uh, you know there there is that incentive and who knows what this is going to look like this is a brave new world for mls and for uh, for league ms but i'm excited i'm excited that is it all right let's take a, a quick break and when we come back as mossy mentioned we will uh, take a trip around europe and all the different games that uh, happen don't go anywhere Okay, welcome back, and it's uh, time we look into all the different scores and games and moments uh, from around Europe. Where do you want to start, Moss? EPL? Let's start with the EPL. Okay. Since we taped our last pod on Wednesday, Manchester City played twice. On Thursday, they had a rousing comeback win over Tottenham, down 2-0 at the break. They scored four unanswered. Riyad Mata is sensational. Pep afterwards ripped into his team. He said they've gotten too complacent, winning four Premier League titles in the last five years. They need to match the hunger of teams like Arsenal and Manchester United. City then turn around and play again early on Sunday against Wolves. 3-0 win. Erlen Holland with a hat-trick, his fourth of the season. He's up to 25 goals Jeez. in the Premier League. We're in January. It's amazing. Uh, and that meant that by the time Arsenal took the field against Manchester United at the Emirates, the gap was down to two, although City had played more games. So they did have some pressure on them, the Gunners. They go down 1-0 to a great Marcus Rashford goal. He continues his scintillating form. There were some nervy moments at the Emirates there. But then Enketia equalizes with a header, 1-1 at the break. Saka with a great strike, 2-1. Ramsdale then gifts United an equalizer, Lissandro Martinez. But Enketia scores at the end, 90th minute winner. There were two different shouts for offsides on the play when Trossard played it out to Zinchenko. And then when the ball squirted back to Enketia, they checked both, said... Look good. Both were okay. Yep. So Ars- were close, but good. Yeah. Arsenal take it. Uh, 3-2 victory over Manchester United. They avenge their only Premier League loss of the season. So the gap between them and City now five points, and Arsenal have played one fewer game. So it, it's interesting because, first off, from a Manchester United perspective, they continue to, to get better and to, I think, be looked on in much more favorable light than any time <laughs> I can remember in, in the recent years, even though they even though they lost this game. You know, Rashford, Smashford uh, just continues to get better and better and better. And he had that that lull period uh, after bursting bursting on the scene. And now uh, everything that he touches is forward. Everything is positive, proactive, and ultimately many things uh, result uh, result in a goal. Arsenal, I still I don't know. Did you talk to your Arsenal friends out there? There is still this this feeling that they they don't want to say it. They don't want to say. It's ours. So five points clear right now, but as you mentioned, a game in hand. And yet there isn't this, because if Man City was in this position, the city supporters would be saying it's ours. You know, we're fine. It's going to be close, but you know, we're going to, we're going to figure it out. I get the feeling that the Arsenal supporters are so kind of gun shy and, and worried about, you know, something else dropping and the soccer gods conspiring against them that they just don't want to jinx it in any possible way by saying that they are the favorite. And But this is a different Arsenal team. This is a different mentality. And this is a team that absolutely can, uh, can win it. But, you know, Man City's going to hang around. They are going to hang around. And they have games against each other. So those proverbial six-point types of things. Uh, so it, this is, this is going to be fun. But a real champion that is just used to being there which we know arsenal at least this version of arsenal is not would be right now licking their chops saying all right we've put some distance now let's finish it off and keep in mind city and arsenal actually play friday in the fa cup at the etihad uh doesn't impact the premier league race but maybe psychologically if sure yeah maybe we'll see what happens maybe not. there maybe not. and i agree with you on manchester united uh, remember they had played a midweek game arsenal hadn't so some tired legs in the second half that might have been a factor and also they were without casemiro who was suspended uh, but I, I agree that they're still in an upward trajectory. Their brief flirtation with being in the title race is over. The draw against Crystal Palace and this defeat means they've fallen fa- back far enough where I don't look at them as being in the race anymore. We're back to just two teams, Arsenal and City United, just about top four. 
Um, and one last Arsenal point. And Ketia, I mentioned scoring twice in this game. That's six and six games, really filling the void uh, left by Gabriel Jesus. Frankly, it's been an upgrade from a goal-scoring department because Jesus was in a huge slump. Yep. Um, and so Ketia has been terrific for them. Um, the other quote-unquote big game um, of the weekend, Liverpool-Chelsea at Anfield finished nil-nil. So wah, those sides wah. remain ninth and 10th in the table, both on 29 points. And, uh, and you know, soccer people will do this, yeah, but it was a really exciting 0-0 game. Like, no, and it was, there was not much to it. Only real point of interest is Mihailo Mudrik came on in the second half and I thought showed some real yep. flashes. So uh, Chelsea fans encouraged by that. He could be a real factor, which, as we've talked about, has major Christian Pulisic implications. Yes. So, all right. So those are the, the big games. Um, Everton lost too, right? Everton lose to West Ham and that spells the end for Frank Lampard. He was sacked today. Uh, so Gerard and Lampard sacked in the same season. Those two are English pundits have been really hoping that those two guys succeed. But uh, as of now, not not so much. And uh, Marcelo Bielsa, who we talked about, has been linked to Mexico and now being linked to Everton as well. Well, a couple of things. Obviously, Everton need more Americans, both on and off the field uh, for that uh, organization. And and by the way, the um, the betting odds I just saw came out. Did you know that... Uh, DC United head coach Wayne Rooney is uh, up there at the top uh, of the list. Wouldn't that be a, a smack in the face? Uh, but not the most surprising thing that you've ever seen. If all of a sudden he said, "Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I'm off. Uh, I'm off to Everton going forward." But also, we as we talked about, you know, he's being linked to uh, to Mexico. But maybe he sees Everton as a. I mean, anybody coming into Everton at this point is just keep them up, right, and continue that tradition, and that's your emergency type of manager that you're talking about right now, right? Correct. Okay. All right. All right. Anything else? Next up, we're going to circle back to the exhibition game late last week between PSG and this uh, Riyadh select team comprised of players from Saudi Arabia's two biggest clubs, Al Nasser and Al Hilal. PSG ended up taking it 5-4. This game was way more entertaining than it had any business being. Uh, I was engrossed um, for the first 60 minutes or so before there was a slew of substitutions and all the stars came out. This game was way more intense than I expected it to be. Everybody took it really seriously. The star showed up. Messi scored in the opening minutes, assisted by Neymar. Ronaldo found the back of it twice. Mbappe doing Mbappe things. Uh, so actually, was quite enjoyable watching this one. Do you think that that was... So why does that happen? Because we've seen plenty of these where they're... And there's no defending, and it's just kind of this weird form of the game that you have that, you know, people cheer, and there can be moments of, of magic. But to your point, it, it was like a real game going on there. And so it, is it just the egos that were involved? Yeah, I, and, you know, I've never been a big Ronaldo guy. I've always been messy over Ronaldo, and so I can't explain this, but as this match kicked off, I found myself really rooting for Ronaldo. Yep. I did not want him to get embarrassed, which that had the potential yeah. of happening. Yep. He obviously was overmatched looking at who he had on his team and who Messi had on his. And this could have been like a four or five mil PSG. But instead, the Riyadh select team held their own. And Ronaldo, like I said, scored two goals, one from the penalty spot, the other a header off the post. He then put in the rebound. So he ended up actually claiming the man of the match award for whatever that's worth. So uh, I was actually happy to see that. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you just uh, witnessed or heard what just happened. My friend David Moss, he managed to make Cristiano Ronaldo a sympathetic figure uh, in all of this. But uh, that does not happen often. But, uh, I, but to your point, I think a lot of people there were with you that said, hey, you know, you don't want to, you know, pile on, as it were, after the World Cup and Messi and everything that, that's going on. And that this once great champion who we know his lot in soccer life has changed and changed dramatically, especially relative to Messi, had this, this moment of a reminder of how great he can be and how much this matchup that over the last decade and, and more has kind of fueled not just them and their brands, but the brand of soccer um, still has some lasting glimmers. Uh, one last, last note, uh, if I may put my Brazilian hat on for one second. Sure. Uh, this game was another occasion for me to lament Anderson Talisca's career choices. Uh, he is a very talented Brazilian who a few years ago was getting linked to the likes of Liverpool and Manchester United, but instead went for the cash grab, moved to China, and then moved to Saudi Arabia from there. I'm sure it has earned loads of money the last few years, but it always disappoints me when a 
player makes that decision in his 20s to go play in China and Saudi Arabia rather than the clubs like Liverpool and Manchester United. And he scored a, a great goal uh, in this game, showed how talented he is. But uh, Well, who, not, not to be stereotypical, but he's not the first nor the last Brazilian oh, oh. player to make some questionable decisions <laughs> relative to their career. B- believe me, this uh, Riyadh Select team was loaded with Brazilians. <laughs> Luis Gustavo, Mateus Pereira. So, yeah, no, I'm with you. It's absolutely... Um, Next up, the Bundesliga. We talked about Gio and Dortmund in the opening segment. Uh, the other big game, Leipzig, Bayern finished 1 1. Chupa Moting and Halstenberg uh, with the goals. Uh, Bayern actually increased their lead at the top of the table because uh, second place, Freiburg lost 6 0 to Wolfsburg. So Bayern now five points clear at the top. Eintracht Frankfurt in second place. I don't understand Chupa Moting. I don't understand the how, how he is so. Not theoretically. <laughs> he is so good. He shouldn't be this good. Very strange. I agree. His career trajectory from bombing out at Stoke to being a very useful player at PSG and then really good at Bayern. I, and even when know. you watch him, even it, like it's almost awkward in the way that he moves <laughs> and there's nothing really not necessarily graceful, but he's productive and you know more power to him. He's figuring, figuring out a way and he's becoming a huge, huge focal point for this team. So good for him. Uh, in Spain, I mentioned on our last pod that Real Madrid had been struggling and they had two tough away games coming up against Villarreal in the Copa del Rey and Athletic Bilbao in La Liga. So depending on what happened in those two games, they could be in the midst of a crisis. Against Villarreal, they were down 2-0, 60-something minute, getting played off the field. The scoreline should have been worse if not for Courtois. So you're thinking, oh my God, Real Madrid are in some trouble here. But Real Madrid being Real Madrid, they come storming back, scored three unanswered, Vinicius, Militão and Ceballos. So they won that game 3-2 and then a nice and tidy 2-0 win at the weekend away to Athletic Bilbao. Benzema and Tony Cruz with the goal. So just like that, their season is back on track. Barcelona also victorious twice in these few days. They took care of third-tier Ceuta in the Copa del Rey and then 1-0 winners over Getafe at the weekend. Pedri with the only goal. So La Liga right now, Barcelona still three points clear at the top of Real Madrid. Both teams moved on to the quarterfinals of the Copa del Rey. The draw already occurred, so we know that coming up this week, Barcelona will host Real Sociedad. Real Madrid will host Atletico Madrid. And both Barcelona and Real Madrid with a game in hand relative to Sociedad and Madrid, or Atletico Madrid in that in that race. But I think it's you know going to come down to the classic. Uh, do they play each other uh, again was, uh, in, in La Liga? Barcelona and Real Madrid? Correct. When is that? Can we know? Okay, so that's that's really what's going to decide this. Like you said, three point uh, three point difference here. All right, good. Well, you know, the the stars are once again aligned, and Barcelona and Real Madrid will fight this out to the end. And then finally, in Italy, the best game of the weekend involved Juventus three three draw against Atalanta. Weston McKinney started this game. Ademola Lukman scored twice for Atalanta. He's really found a nice home there. But Juventus in the news for all the wrong reasons. Uh, they've been docked 15 points because of uh, they were punished for phony accounting practices. They lied about uh, the pay cuts that players took during the COVID pandemic. Also, they've done this thing where they're involved in these swap deals where no money actually changes hands, but they report it as two separate transfers. And the reason you do that is that um, money you receive from a transfer, you can report in one lump sum right away, while money you spend to acquire a player, you can spread that out over the duration of the player's contract. So at least in the short term, you can report a huge profit on those deals. And the issue is uh, Juve are in the Italian stock exchange, so they have to report their financial dealings properly. They didn't. And so it ends up being a 15-point penalty. I hope I explained that correctly, uh, which knocks them all the way down to ninth place in Serie A. They're appealing. They're appealing to the Italian courts. And if that fails, they'll take it to our good friends, the Court of Arbitration for uh. Sport. I have no idea who's on there, but somehow they are the final word on everything really in the sports world. Nobody can argue with them. Whatever they decide, that's what goes. I mean, uh, what it comes down to is they cheated. Okay, you don't have to. You know, I mean, all, after all the explanation, they they cheated, and now they're going to pay the price. Maybe they need a GM. Maybe they need a better GM. You know, to uh, to figure all that uh, going for. Yeah, Brian McBride. Who knows? Uh, okay, but all right. So, fifteen points assessed now, right? Right, as opposed to assessed at the beginning of next year. So, right now, the goal for Juventus has to be to make up obviously as many points in order to get into Champions League play. The part of the story that is a little bit weird is the prosecutor 
looked at the standings and he really wanted to damage Juve's hopes of qualifying for the Champions League. And he asked for a nine-point penalty, which at the time he thought would do that. And then Juve went on a good run and improved their standing. And so the judge ultimately ruled it a 15-point penalty because nine points he felt like wouldn't be damaging enough. That feels like a weird way to determine how much the points penalty is. <laughs> well, if it's a, if it's an arbitrary determination, I mean, for example, if if somebody murdered somebody, right? And then the next day we found a pill that makes people live to 200 years old. Okay? <laughs> Your sentence for that person might dramatically change. So I guess I guess that's what was ultimately going on because there has to be something punitive that is really felt in order to change behavior. And so the 15 points I think was relative like you said to putting them in a position where it's not completely out of the, the realm of possibility. 14 points they have to make up. And, you know, this is this is Juventus, but we've already talked about potential outgoing types of uh, situations. So maybe they're planning for a future where they're not in Champions League. Uh, but it, it can be done. It can be done by, uh, by Juventus. So that would be, you think, would they have, well, they would have probably taken 15 points at the beginning of, of next season in order to assure themselves the money of, uh, of Champions League. Incidentally, Andrea Agnelli, who's uh, prominently featured in that Super League doc because he was one of the architects of that, he's been banned for two years because of this. And Fabio Paratici, who was the sporting director at Juventus when a lot of this went on, he's been banned too, although he's now at Tottenham. It's unclear if the ban applies to his current job as well, so we'll have to wait and see on that. Yeah, you're nobody in Italian soccer if you haven't been banned or punished or fined or, uh, you know spoken to in a harsh way. <laughs> so, uh, By yeah. the way, I forgot to mention this at the very top, but you know who else is featured on that Super League documentary? Who's that? You. They Me? Took, they took a clip from, I our, from our podcast, you talking about the Super League. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I can guarantee uh, which clip they took. <laughs> Bring it. Bring it on. Wonderful. Well, you know, we're here to provide content. Yeah. and uh, uh, Kate Abdo, also terrific on that. Oh, she's in it too. She's in it as well. Yes. Got it. Wonderful. Okay. Well, who knows? When all is said and done, there still might be a Super League. And yep. we, might, we might get a great league and great soccer. That Keith Cossigan Twitter thread is extraordinary. I mean, how much time does Keith have on his head? It was like 15 tweets in a row. Yeah, I couldn't keep up with it. Too much, too much, Keith, too much. I love Keith, but there's too much Keith, yes. right? Is that what yes. it is? Yes, yes. Okay. We love you, Keith. All right, that is it. That's it. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, it's time for Ask Alexis. Okay, welcome back. It's that time of the show when we do uh, Ask Alexa. You ask some questions out there on all the different media platforms, and you can use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, if you want. Keep in mind that our uh, handles out there on social media are SOTU with Alexi, so at SOTU with Alexi, or you can send in a question on our State of the Union podcast hotline, which is 657 657-549-2297, 657-549-2297. Nine seven. What are we starting with this? Uh, you know this segment, or what are we starting with first, Mossy? Uh, we have a voicemail. Let's take a listen. Hey, David Cope from up in Vail, Colorado. Appreciate you taking a picture with uh, my some of my former players and me at the convention, Lex. That was gracious of you, and they loved it. Um, I got a format for the 2026 World Cup that I think works for everybody and makes tons of money and showcases the game. Knockout games right from the beginning. Now, hear me out. 16 teams get in as the seeded teams in their groups. So you got the top two in each group seeded. Boom. Uh, that puts a little bit more weight on qualifying, right? You want to finish top of your group in Europe or South America. So you get right into one of those 16 spots. So those guys are seeded and they're in. Then you take the next 32 teams. They play a single elimination game to get into the group phase. And we could use those games to showcase some of our fantastic venues in the United States, Canada, Mexico that were not chosen to post World Cup games. So you could throw games in these new stadiums in Austin and, you know, Cincinnati and Nashville and places like that. Um, spread the love of the World Cup, spread the game, as FIFA always likes to say. So the 16 winners from those games, they get put into the group phase. And now you're back into the traditional 32-team format or at least traditional in the last couple of World Cups. I think it would be exciting. It would be awesome to spread it more around the country and imagine the audience for those 
teams. You got to win to get into the group phase. Um, it's only one less game if you lose than it would have been in a three-team group if you finished last. So uh, let me know what you think. I hope you can uh, comment on this new format for 2026. Bye. Okay. Uh, thank you, David, from Vail. Must be nice up there in Vail right now, skiing, hanging out, après skiing, which is um, something I'm really good at. Uh, and, yeah, it was a pleasure uh, meeting uh, your your. Uh, uh, your players, and thank you for uh, being a coach. Okay, so you know people were listening to our uh, discussion out there. Some interesting stuff from David. Keep in mind that when we talk about the World Cup, okay, and the World Cup finals, what we're really talking about is the entire tournament. It's not just the actual tournament, for example, that happened in November and December in Qatar. It's all of the qualifying process that really encompasses it. So you know, adding a single game elimination, it's, it's still all part of the World Cup. I, I get what he's trying to do here, but again, I think it goes back to what you were talking about. Are we taking something and unnecessarily making it even more complicated than it should be? To be honest, uh, David's suggestion is just, he's trying to figure out a way to clear out those 16 extra teams and let's just get it back to what it's been right. in the last few World Cups. Um, no, he's no, but but to to be fair, the quickest and maybe the most entertaining way but, of actually doing that might be what he suggested. But, but a, a team that loses that play-in game and then is not even in the group stage from that point forward, to what degree do they feel like they were actually at the World right, Cup? Right. You know, I, well, I think the whole point for Johnny Infantino is to give more teams the the true World Cup experience, which I'm not sure you would have if you just true. played one play-in game and they're that, out. That that is true. So in that sense, you're not giving them ultimately what the promise is right now. However. I mean, even the the one-game play-ins, which were new this year because of COVID and all that kind of stuff that we saw for this World Cup that happened in uh, in Qatar, I mean, that's drama. That is tune-in. You either you either win this game and you go to, I guess what would be called the bigger World Cup or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it, or or you're out. But to your point, do they then say, yeah, we went to the World Cup. We just lost our only game and that was and that was it. I don't know. I mean. I don't know if there is a good way of ultimately ultimately doing this, but David, I love that you're thinking about things. And I also love that you're thinking about utilizing all of those soccer-specific stadiums that we have had come online over the last 20 years that are, they're not obsolete, but they're not, they're not realistic when it comes to an actual full World Cup. And maybe that's where, you know, those things can come into play. Maybe I'm influenced by college basketball because a few years ago they came up with these goofy play-in play games in, yeah, before so. the NCAA tournament. And they try to act like those games are part of the NCAA tournament. One of my strongest sports takes, a hill that I'll die on, is those play-in games are not part of the NCAA You're tournament. Not, okay. If you lose that, in my view, you did not reach the NCAA tournament that season. The NCAA tournament is 64 teams. For me, that's an open and shut thing. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see ultimately what uh, what what FIFA decides. Again, still no word, and the sooner the better, so that we can all could prepare and wrap our minds around it. What else? Oh, Michigan will be lucky to get into those play-in games. Juwan Howard doing a terrible job this season. <laughs> we move on. Uh, Twitter, a uh, couple of Twitter questions. The first one, Philip um, asks, "What mainstay of American soccer is it in is on your agenda to ruin this week? Since you seem to have that sort of power." <laughs> Yeah, I am uh, on uh, the Twitter machine over there uh, on a, a daily or at least a weekly base, basis. Somebody comes out and accuses me of uh, being the Antichrist and um, orchestrating the destruction and demise of soccer and that I'm the worst thing that has ever happened to the game. I don't feel that I am, but uh, if I do have a dastardly plan to execute, uh, to bring down anything and everything that is good when it comes to soccer or is just there when it comes to soccer. My next target would probably be scarves. And I think I've mentioned this before, but if, if not, I will repeat. The phenomenon of scarves in soccer, um, I, have, I have never seen something that is, that is more uh, useless and um, I, I just don't understand it. Now, listen, I understand what a scarf is for, but never in a million years would I just go out in the cold 
and use one of these soccer scarves, okay? If you have a brand or if you have a message, make a t-shirt, make a hat. That I will wear. But don't, don't give me scarves, okay? I have absolutely no use for them. And I would say the same thing even if I was living in a cold, you know, I grew up in Michigan. That's not, that's not what I'm putting on if I'm, put, if I'm putting on a scarf. If I'm going out to a dinner or if I'm going out with my wife or if you're going out on a date or something like that, you're not showing up with a, your arsenal scarf. So I don't understand it and they just get tossed. So yeah, so that's, that's the next order of business I'm going to. And within the scarf world, there's the whole thing with the, with the double teams that they have. And I know a lot of people have a real problem with that. I just have a problem with the scarf, uh, the scarf in general. And when it is 100 degrees outside, they're even more useless than, uh, than in normal times. So yeah, that's, Philip, what I am going to set my sights on next. And unless those meddlesome kids get in, get in the way... That's what my uh, dastardly plan has in store. Uh, next up, uh, we circle back to the topic that we talked about at the top of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave FC, uh, in reference to Gio Reyna scoring that great goal for Dortmund against Augsburg, he said to you, and yet you want Greg over Gio. Kind of sad, don't you think? Uh, no. Okay, so I never said that I want Greg Berhalter over Geo. Um, I think that if the United States Soccer Federation decides to continue on with Greg Berhalter, and we know they are in the midst of that decision and the investigation continues on, um, I actually believe that they can coexist. And I'm talking about Greg Berhalter and Geo Reyna. And I think that there is, if they're going to go with, uh, with Greg Berhalter, I think you have to nip it in the butt in that you have to get the parties involved. And that means everybody. That means Gio. That means Greg Berhalter. That means Greg's wife, the, the Reynas, everybody in a room. And you lock that door. You put all those parties together and just get it all out. All right. So if you have to scream, if you have to cry, um, if accusations have to be made, if apologies have to be made, if you have to throw stuff, do whatever it is you need to do to work it out. And maybe I'm, I'm, I'm delusional, or maybe I'm Pollyanna in the way that I think about uh, this. And maybe the damage, which we know is significant, is too much for reconciliation. But I am, I am an optimist. The relationship is never going to be the same. But I do believe, because as I said before earlier in the pod, Gio is not going anywhere. This is an incredible young talent that has already been a part of a World Cup uh, f- uh, team for the United States. So he is going to continue on. And so if Greg Berhalter is that, is that person, uh, then fine. But in no way am I saying that hire Greg Berhalter and then cast out Gio Reyna. No, they're going to have to coexist. Now, if Greg Berhalter doesn't think that Gio Reyna is the right player for his team and shouldn't be with the national team, that's ultimately a subjective decision that he makes. Yes, with all the baggage that, uh, that comes with that. And I know there's a lot of people that feel that that baggage precludes him from being able to continue on. And again, this is what I go back to. The assessment now is forever going to be with that baggage. And that's where the damage is. And that's where, you know, I, I know that life isn't fair. I know that soccer isn't fair. But pointing out the fact that that is not fair, I think that that is, that is important. The genie is out of the bottle. You're never getting it back in. And Greg Berhalter right now is being assessed relative to something that never, ever should have been part of, uh, of the assessment here. But if they do t- come to the conclusion... Think they, I think that they can coexist and I think they can uh, continue on. So it's not one or the other. And we all know I'm not making a decision, uh, decision anyway. Mossy? I disagree with you on the coexisting part. You don't think that they can? No. Why? I just think it'd be too awkward at this point. So, so you'd make a choice one or the other? 
Yeah, I think you have to at this point. So if you're Greg, Ber if Greg, Ber if you're the head of the Federation and you hire Greg Berhold, you say, look, you know, I know this stuff has happened and we're not happy about this and this and this, but we think you're the best person for the job going forward. You don't think that he brings in Giorena. I mean, you would know better than me locker room dynamics. Don't you think with all this having happened, it's been incredibly difficult for them to, to have a I'm good... I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but as, as I've told you before, you would be surprised as... Well, maybe you wouldn't, but what players are able to compartmentalize, what coaches are able to compartmentalize. And it's not that you're not human. It's just, I think this has gotten so out of hand right now that if if some some people were able to sit down and actually get it all out, I do think that they could come to some sort of understanding going forward. And I don't think that that necessarily is, is going to happen. And to your point, I think ultimately what is going to happen is Greg Berhalter is going to, is, is not going to get the job. Gio Reyna is going to continue to be part of the, of the national team. And ultimately, even though, it's not necessarily the way that they wanted it to happen. The Reinas are going to be rewarded and they are going to get what they've wanted all along, which is a national team that is not coached by Greg Berhalter. And that is where the sadness is. And that is where the unfair nature is when I look at it. But, you know, whoever, whoever they, if they decide on somebody new, I will support that uh, that person. I'll continue to support Greg Berhalter and whatever he ends up doing. By the way, that baggage is going to follow him to wherever he goes now through no fault of his own relative to that information coming out and now being part of anything and everything that he does. So, all right, Mossy. Uh, anything else? That is it. All right, let's take another quick break. And when I come back, oh, we got one for the road. I'm smacking my lips because this one is a tasty one for the road. Don't worry. All right, welcome back. It's the end of our show, and at the end of each and every show, I give you my uh, one for the road. Someone was asking me uh, the other day on uh, Twitter about my favorite burger, you know, and I, I have, I have, I have traveled the world, Mossy. I have had hamburgers in all sorts of locales around the world: good burgers, bad burgers, big burgers, small burgers, messy burgers, uh, burgers that don't even have meat, if those can even be called burgers. I still come back to a classic. My favorite burger has been, continues to be, and for the foreseeable future, uh, will continue to be the McDonald's Quarter Pounder with cheese. It is a classic, okay? Um, you know, for those that watch movies, the Royale with cheese. And it is, I think, the perfect size, the perfect consistency. And yes, the, um, the way that you get exactly what you want, <laughs> I think that that plays, uh, that plays into it. Now, I am not a burger snob. As I said, I've had some incredible burgers and high-end types of situations. And people have said, this will be the best burger you ever taste and Kobe beef and all that, all, all that kind of stuff. No, I mean, a burger you got to work to screw up a burger and don't get me wrong. This isn't a challenge. There are people out there that have, have screwed up burgers. Okay. But it's a pretty simple type of food and it's a classic for a reason. Mossy, I would like to know how you feel about the quarter pounder with cheese, but more importantly, do you have something that comes to mind when it comes to your favorite burger? Well, I think you have to separate between fast food. Oh, McDonald's, how dare you? Burger how King, dare you? You elitist snob. Why do you have to separate it out? Well, there are places here in LA that fancy themselves more upscale burger joints to the degree that a burger could ever be upscale. Your planchecks, your apple pans, your father's office. Um, oh, look no, at you just rattling them off. No, but I, I, I'm with you. I, I'd love that quarter pounder yeah, right? cheese. Yeah, I, I still, I'm trying to cut down on that no, type no, of food exactly. to lose weight, but every now and then exactly. I still. But as far as just the taste and the experience of it, it's incredible. Yeah, uh, you know what my first ever in and out experience was? What, what was that? This was before I was living in LA. I came to visit a friend who lived in LA, and I had it in my head that I wanted to try in and out, see what all right, the fuss was about. Does, yep. And I didn't get a chance to throughout the whole trip. So on the cab, on my way to LAX, you to get on a plane one? to fly back to New York, 
I spotted it in and out and I told the cab driver, hey, if you pull over here and do drive through, I'll, I'll buy you lunch as well. He said, sure. So we picked up drive through and me and the cab driver ate it in the parking lot of that in and out before going to LAX. Oh, that's, so awesome. that's, a, that's a great story. I love that. That, that. that is awesome. All right. Listen, tell us your favorite burger out there. And and look, if you want to be snobby about it, go ahead and be snobby about it. I have uh, one of my uh, brother-in-law's uh, for years did a, a site dedicated to burgers and, and finding the best burgers out there and, and people would send in. And everybody thinks that they have the best burger. Everybody thinks that they have the secret and the magic touch to give you that most incredible, uh, most incredible, incredible burger. And every city has some place to say, oh, this is where you ultimately go. But again, I think there's a lot of snobbery and elitism when it comes down to uh, the burgers. All right. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. Uh, remember, again, uh, send us your questions. Uh, use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, or call us on the uh, the hotline, 657-549-2297, um, Keep subscribing. Keep rating. Keep uh, reviewing. Keep downloading. Keep doing all the wonderful things that, that you are doing. We appreciate it. It warms the cockles of our heart uh, that so many people are tuning into the State of the Union podcast. We will be back again later on this week. As we mentioned with the U.S. playing this week, we are going to do our show Thursday morning. It'll be out later. It'll be out later Thursday, but a little bit later in your feed because we want to make sure we have a reaction to the U.S. Serbia game. Right? They're playing Serbia, and then they are going to play uh, uh, Colombia. U.S. Men's National Team will play Serbia at. It's no longer the bank, evidently. It uh, it changed now, right? BMO, right? BMO, BMI, BMO. I think it's BMO. Anyway, it's been rebranded over there. And then uh, Dignity Health will be the second game against uh, Colombia. But we will come to you after the first game against Serbia. We will see you. We will hear you. Well, you'll hear us. And we'll hear you to a certain extent if you're sending in uh, questions. And until then, and as always, my friends, size the day. <laughs>